Hi, I'm Ujala Mali. I'm Blair Bigham. This is a CMAJ podcast. So today, Blair, we're going to be talking about the five things you need to know about allopurinol hypersensitivity. So for me, allopurinol is one of those medications that I see a lot of patients uh, with. And so reading about the hypersensitive syndrome was really interesting. And there's so many drugs that sort of flag in my mind as like drugs to watch out for, drugs to provide caution with. But allopurinol isn't necessarily one of those that are like top of mind when I put somebody on it, uh, prescribe it, or when I see somebody come into the ER and they're already on it. So I, I think this is a, sort of a really interesting one to to highlight today. So today we're going to talk to the authors about the this hypersensitivity syndrome, and then we're going to talk to David Derlink, a clinical pharmacologist and toxicologist, who's going to expand the conversation beyond allopurinol to talk about other drugs that we should all be maybe a little bit more cautious of prescribing. Dr. Wood Yassin and Dr. Jonathan Zapersky are co-authors of the practice paper in CMAJ entitled Five Things to Know About Allopurinol Hypersensitivity Syndrome. Dr. Zapersky is a general internist, clinical pharmacologist, and clinician scientist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. And Dr. Yassin is a second-year internal medicine resident physician at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Tell us, what were you seeing in your clinical practice that sparked you to write this paper on allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome? It's a great question, Blair. So the our rationale for writing the paper was mainly twofold. Firstly, that as a clinical pharmacologist, I tend to see a lot of hypersensitivity drug reactions. And allopurinol is one of those culprit drugs that is known to cause hypersensitivity reactions. And our goal was to highlight this as a potential serious adverse drug reaction that we felt that the general population should know about. And the second piece was that there are some genetic factors that might put certain people at risk of developing this hypersensitivity reaction. And we felt that those genetic tests and those genetic susceptibilities were underappreciated. And we wanted to highlight that uh, for other physicians, mainly that allopurinol is such a commonly used drug. And I mm -hmm. felt that people weren't ordering the HLA testing as frequently as maybe they should be. And so that's that was really one of the major things we wanted to highlight for other colleagues and other healthcare providers that perhaps we should be ordering this test more frequently. So before we get into the genetics of the syndrome, I've never even heard of it before. It, it had never come up in residency as far as I can remember. What's the prevalence of it? Is, is it common? It's pretty rare. It's one in 1,000 people who are prescribed allopurinol can develop allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome, but the mortality is pretty high. Up to 25% of people wow. can die with this condition. So tell us more about the actual syndrome. It, it's sort of like a Stevens-Johnson's reaction? It's a severe cutaneous adverse reaction. So it encompasses a few clinical syndromes, including Stevens-Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, and drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. And patients usually present with a rash. They can present with fever, evidence of multi-organ involvement like kidney impairment and liver injury, and evidence of peripheral eosinophilia on their blood work. And usually they can present actually a few weeks after being started on this medication. A few weeks? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. How does it differ across populations? In terms of like susceptibility or? In terms of prevalence. Mm -hmm. So there's been 
haplotypes that have been associated with increased risk of developing allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome, including the HLA-B5801 allele, which John alluded to earlier. In patients who are carriers of this allele, they're at much increased risk of developing this adverse drug reaction, and the allele frequency is highest in certain populations, including those of East Asian descent like Han Chinese, Thai, and Korean populations. So tell us more about the the way we should be testing for this gene before prescribing allopurinol, because it, it never had crossed my mind before. So the first step is really identifying patients who might be at increased risk. And one of the populations that are incre- at increased risk are those who are carriers of the HLA-B5801 allele. And those include certain ethnic populations, including those of East Asian descent. Other risk factors include patients who have chronic kidney disease and patients who have cardiovascular risk factors. And so in patients who are being prescribed allopurinol who have these risk factors, it's important to think about mitigating the risk. And for patients who may be carriers of the haplotype, that's when genetic testing can be indicated. So what's the pathophysiology of the having the sensitivity? So I think the major risk factors that had been identified previously, the card is more chronic kidney disease and cardiovascular risk factors. There was a large study actually published in CMAJ a few years ago, a big observational study that identified those as the two main risk factors associated with developing adverse drug reactions to allopurinol or allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. The, the pathophysiology behind the chronic kidney disease is thought to be perhaps related to drug clearance. Um, you know, it, the drug is metabolized and then eventually renally cleared. And that's why in those who have poor renal clearance, perhaps the drug metabolites are, you know, achieving higher concentrations. So that's why the guidelines suggest starting low dose allopurinol in most patients, but especially in those who have evidence of chronic renal disease uh, to start at an even lower dose and then titrate up to treatment effect, but also being mindful of the potential adverse reactions. And so the HLA testing is, uh, it is available pretty readily in Canada. And the guidelines suggest identifying patients that might be at slightly higher risk based on based on a race or ethnicity, and then sort of risk stratifying that way. I'm not, allopurinol is so ubiquitously used, it, it would be mm-hmm. very difficult to encourage testing for absolutely everybody for HLA B5801. I want to ask more about the HLA testing because I can imagine for a lot of physicians, they might be hesitant. I mean, I guess you'd have to memorize HLA B5801. You know, a lot of people might not be testing that all the time. In the ER, I'm never going to order that test. Is it expensive? How long does it take? Does it have to get flown somewhere to be done? Or is it something that any lab would do? So not all labs will do HLA testing. I think that's an important point. In most provinces, we can access that test. For example, in Toronto, when I'm sending the lab test off, we don't we don't run that test on our center. We actually send it down to the University Health Network to run that test. But but most, if you look, most hospitals or health systems will have a cadre of pharmacogenetic testing you can order. And of course, it's very difficult to remember which specific pharmacogenetic refers to which syndrome. But oftentimes, they have selections of like HLA-P5801 is associated with allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome, so that physicians can. So it cues physicians into like, this is the correct one to be ordering. Is it OHIP covered? Uh, it is OHIP covered, I believe. If you're doing it through the hospital, it's OHIP covered. I I would imagine if you're doing it at an outside lab, there is a cost associated with it. But off the top of my head, mm. I, I, don't, I, I don't have the cost of it. 
I guess that my question then becomes, should family physicians be te- like, if we're saying that they should test for this, how can they access that if it's only OHIP covered through the hospital network? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think I think it is important, like especially, again, we're not advocating for testing in all patient populations. I think there's some differing in guidelines about that right now. But in, in terms of the guidelines that we're using, I think we should be testing in high-risk populations that we sort of highlighted before. How to get access to it, I think you're right. This may be a bit of an equity issue that uh, if they're not getting it done, in in the major hospital systems and if it's not OHIP covered it may limit access i mean I, as a sort of a spin-off of why we wrote this piece perhaps this is a reason to be advocating uh for coverage for some of these tests like we really sure. think it's an important ph- pharmacogenetics like there are lots of pharmacogenetic associations and uh, but this is one that we feel is actually a really important one and so as a as part of why we wrote this piece perhaps this is a reason to consider advocating for some of these pharmacogenetic tests is, tests to be covered we were looking at the frequency of this particular allele, and there's a couple of populations that sort of score off the chart, Thai populations, Han Chinese populations, South Korean populations. And then right in the middle of the chart were African-Americans. Should black patients also be screened, or is it is the, the payoff not quite there with the pretest probability? Yeah, this is, it's a really good question. And it's an area of interest right now. Like the most recent American guidelines do recommend screening African American patients for the haplotype. But in terms of the the risks associated with developing the drug reaction, actually, some studies have shown that despite the increased allele frequency within the African American population, the risk of developing the adverse drug reaction was not appreciated. And so it might it poses a question about the genetic variability within the black population mm. that is that's a high genetic variability within the population that doesn't necessarily translate to an increased risk of the adverse drug reaction so i think you know it is a really good question and maybe in the future we'll see more research that includes black patients especially in canada because most of the research from canada comes out of the east asian population particularly in british columbia which supports screening those populations here I want to get into some practical prescribing tips, but first I want to ask, how do you pick up this drug reaction if it's happening? When do people present and how quickly does it become full-blown where you're suddenly at a a pretty high mortality risk? So after being prescribed allopurinol, some patients and the counseling is usually to, we should be counseling patients to look out for symptoms like developing a new rash or new fevers or feeling unwell. And typically patients may present with this about eight or nine weeks after being started on allopurinol. So it's pretty somewhat delayed in a sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the classic That's the classic course. You know, oftentimes we think of drug reactions as somebody taking a drug and developing a reaction immediately. This is one of these examples where when we see it clinically, the classic patient course is somebody who's been on it for weeks, if not months, and then they develop symptoms. And oftentimes, one of the reasons why this can be so hard to pick up is it often starts with a viral prodrome, it almost looks like you've had, it almost looks like you've had the flu and it's treated as having a viral infection. And then a couple days later, that's when we start to see the rash. That's when we start to see some of the other blood work abnormalities. So that's, it's somewhat of an insidious type of Hmm. uh, reaction. It can be very difficult to pick up sometimes. So that's why we would sort of advocate for if somebody has been on this medication for that critical time period, which is 
several weeks to months and they start having flu-like symptoms, fevers, if any sign of a rash, they seek medical attention, they stop the drug immediately. So someone comes in, we know that you diagnose them clinically with the hypersensitivity. What's the treatment pathway? So the treatment pathway varies to some extent on the severity and also on the sort of the subtype of the syndrome that they have. First and foremost, it's stopping the drug. That's critical. And secondly, good supportive care. Like I think patients with SJS or TN oftentimes need to be in a very high level of care. Where I work at Sunnybrook, we have a burn unit. So those patients are treated in our burn unit. Oftentimes, if there's in places where there isn't a burn unit, they're treated in an intensive care unit. But again, there, there is a spectrum. And sometimes if it's not particularly severe, stopping the drug may be just good enough. If there's evidence of internal organ involvement, oftentimes we start steroids, and that which which is often a prolonged course of steroids. And then there are some adjunct treatments depending on if it is SJS or TN. Sometimes we use drugs like cyclosporin or some of the TNF-alpha inhibitors. But again, it depends on whether it's this DRESS-type syndrome, how severe it is, or if it is the SJS-TN phenotype. The, the nuanced treatment actually differs a little bit. The consistent treatment is stopping the drug with excellent supportive care. So allopurinol, super common prescription. Can you give us some really practical tips to reduce the risk of allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome? You had mentioned starting at a low dose. Like what doses are we talking about and how do you gradually titrate up to, to have a treatment effect? The recommendation is that if patients have, so number one, in patients who are positive for the genetic test, they should not be started on allopurinol. If they have other risk factors, like for example, chronic kidney disease, the recommendation is to start low at less than 50 milligrams a day. And based on the patient's tolerance, then you can increase the dose. Okay. And then in terms of alternatives, what else could people consider instead of using allopurinol? So fabuxostat is the other urate-lowering drug, and it's just as effective as allopurinol. Okay. But it is considered second line because it's associated with some cardiovascular risks and drug-induced liver injury. So typically, the, the medication is usually only covered in patients who can't tolerate allopurinol. Okay. Or in, in those populations who are HLA positive, that would be a hard stop to go to that second line therapy right off exactly. the bat. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Any other tips that you would have for family doctors or emergency doctors and other people who are prescribing allopurinol? I think sort of WID has touched on the major ones. Start low and slow, particularly those who have risk factors. I think in those that are in high-risk populations, we certainly suggest testing for, assuming it's available and accessible, testing for the HLA B5801. I think a really important thing for most providers to know is that is if somebody's on allopurinol and there's any signs of a flu-like illness or there's any developing rash that, especially in that critical time period, which is weeks to months after starting the new start of the drug, that should be, the treatment should be stopping allopurinol first and foremost and reassessing. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks I'm for having glad. us. Dr. Jonathan Zapersky is a general internist, clinical pharmacologist, and clinician scientist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. And Dr. Wid Yassin is a second-year internal medicine resident physician at the University of Toronto. So we're now going to expand the conversation around adverse drug reactions beyond allopurinol. And we're very lucky that Dr. David Yearlink is here to help us. He's a staff internist and a head of division of clinical pharmacology 
and Toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Science Center in Toronto. He's also a medical toxicologist at the Ontario Poison Center at the Hospital for Sick Kids, and he's also a Twitter celebrity in the med Twitter world. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thanks for having me. So we just heard about the risk of allopurinol for specific populations. So both me and Blair, were, were we asleep during that part of medical school or residency? Because I don't remember that being highlighted at all. I certainly learned nothing about this, but I, I went through, I'm guessing I went through school before you guys did. I finished in 94, but I still don't think it's taught all that well or all that much. I do think that trainees who come through today have a greater awareness about drug reactions than we did mm -hmm. maybe 20 or 30 years ago. But it's this aspect of genetics is still in its infancy in a way. And I think it's something that people will be expected to know more about as time goes on. So what are some other common prescribed medications that come with an increased risk for certain populations? I think the best studied drug is probably abacavir, which is a drug for HIV. And it's got a different HLA association, B5701. That's about somewhere between 5 and 8% of Europeans. Mm -hmm have this. Uh, Han Chinese, between 1% and 5%. But in Japanese people, it's extremely rare. But I think it's standard of care now. People, Docs who look after patients with HIV, I don't think they'll start a year without testing for this oh. HLA because of the association so strong. Other common drugs that come to mind, there are some we use mainly in hospitals like vancomycin, but carbamazepine, a drug that we use for seizure disorders or for neuropathies and sometimes for mental health problems, that is, that's got a strong association with an HLA called B1502. And here again, Han Chinese around 1.5 to 7% and vanishingly rare in Japanese. And Dapsone, a drug that we sometimes used for immunological disorders and certain skin conditions. Again, about 1 in 20 Han Chinese will test positive for 1301. These are all different HLAs that impart an increased risk of severe and potentially life-threatening drug reactions that I think they're worth knowing about. David, we've been focusing on drugs that can kill you. <laughs> what about the drugs that just don't work occasionally in some of these populations? Ah, this is a really good question. And so two classic examples here that most docs will be familiar with would be codeine and clopidogrel. So, so codeine, which you can buy without a prescription in Canada, but most of us have prescribed it or even taken it, it doesn't do anything. Codeine has to be converted by the liver into morphine, its main active metabolite. And the, the enzyme in the liver that does that, it goes by the complicated name cytochrome P452D6, or CYP2D6 for oh, sure. Oh, yes, of course. It, yeah, makes a, <laughs> makes a small little change to the codeine molecule and turns it into morphine. Mm. So that enzyme is very polymorphic, meaning that some of us don't have any of it. If you're of European descent... It depends what country you're from, but you know about six percent of Canadians who are of European descent don't have any of this enzyme, and will and will take convert exactly no codeine into morphine. So you can give them sixty of codeine, one hundred and twenty of morphine, it won't do anything. So sometimes you'll hear people say, "Codeine doesn't work for me." And the reason it doesn't work for them may well be because they cannot turn it into morphine. In contrast with codeine, there are some other populations that have extra copies of the gene that turns it into morphine. And so, especially in the Middle East, so about a third of people in, if you go to Eastern Africa, so Ethiopia, for example, or Somalia, 
or in the Arabian Peninsula, about 20 to 30% of people will have extra copies of the gene and they will turn codeine into morphine more efficiently. So in other words, when you give somebody a known dose of codeine, what you're really doing is giving them an unknown dose of morphine. And this gets at Blair's question about drugs not working or genetic influences that might undermine the therapeutic response. Another great example is clopidogrel, a drug that we use quite a lot in patients who've got cardiovascular disease and stroke. So clopidogrel is another drug that on its own doesn't do anything. It has to be turned into its active metabolite, in, like codeine. It's a different enzyme that does that. It's called CYP2C19. This is an interesting one because there are some people who cannot turn clopidogrel on. They just lack altogether the enzymes that do that. So black populations, about 2 to 5%. Asian populations, up to a quarter of them, you know, cannot turn clopidogrel into its active metabolite. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who've got extra copies of the gene that, to do this. So they'll activate clopidogrel just fine. About 40% of Caucasians are ultra-rapid metabolizers, meaning that they will convert clopidogrel very effectively into its active metabolite. So uh, there's a long list of enzymes that turn drugs on and turn drugs off. But on your, to your question, Blair, about the, the genetic determinants of that, that's also widely available. We, we can easily test with a, a buckle swab or sometimes with blood testing. And you, patients, I'm sure, most doctors listening to this will have had a patient bring to them the results of pharmacogenetic testing mm -hmm. that says, I'm an ultra-rapid 2C19, and what on earth does that mean? And I and we could infer right now that it would mean that you would probably have a good response to clopidogrel. I feel like in real life, most people aren't getting that genetic testing no. or doctors aren't ordering it. And so I'm curious, you, like, how does, do things right now, you know, you get put on clopidogrel and what, it's not working, nobody knows until you have another MI or you block your stent? That's what like, I was thinking. Yeah. So it's easy with codeine because you can tell whether the patient's had a response or not. Right. Right. Uh, it's it's more problematic with clopidogrel. And I think most places now are testing or should be testing mm. because if you've had a, a couple of stents placed and you're on aspirin and clopidogrel and you cannot turn clopidogrel into its active metabolite, you're effectively not on clopidogrel. Right. So I think a lot of hospitals are, are checking CYP2C19 status. And if the patient happens to be a poor or intermediate metabolizer, they just use something else like ticagrelor in the case of cardiac disease. Okay. And this is happening in real life right now? Like people are ordering it, it, I don't, genetic I, tests? It happens, I think, to varying degrees by site. Where okay. I see the testing happen, I, I, I get occasionally I'll see a patient who brings to me a report that they got done at a typically a concierge medicine clinic that they've paid a few hundred dollars right. for and it spits out their entire... I won't say entire metabolic profile, but it'll tell you what their makeup is for a dozen or so cytochrome P450s. And it is kind of useful sometimes. So another really important example, because so many people are on these drugs, is PPIs. Mm. So, so PPIs, here are drugs that are active. They're not turned into an active metabolite. When you give somebody omeprazole or pantoprazole, it is, it's active and ready to go. Those drugs are metabolized by the same enzyme, CYP2C19, that happens to turn clopidogrel mm -hmm. on. If you have somebody who 
has Helicobacter pylori and you put them on a PPI-based regimen to try and eradicate it, you know, what we know is that one reason why that regimen might fail is because people just have the genetic machinery that lets them chew through the PPI much more quickly. Mm. And so one way of getting around that is just to intensify the dose. And so this is increasingly being adopted as part of you the management. You say that, but I'm someone who's on a PPI and I still have symptoms, but I also do eat bad foods. And so I'm like, wait, do I not maybe metabolize this? And also like as someone who scopes patients and puts people on PPIs, like I have patients yeah. who've been on, who I've done like two different regimens for H. pylori eradication, and we can't eradicate it. Now I'm like, wait. So are, so are your patients also black? Some are. Because 40, 45% <laughs> of people, 45% of people who are black are ultra-rapid metabolizers in CYP2C19. So what that means is they will have a great response to clopidogrel, but they might not respond to a PPI because huh. they just break it down too quickly. So well, I feel like so a terrible you know, doctor because I'm just kind of like, well, maybe it's like I send them for like cognitive behavioral therapy because I'm like, well, maybe this is also like emotional that you're not because they're like, well, nothing is getting better. My reflux is still terrible. This is like actually practice changing. So if I have a patient who we've tried like a bunch of different PPIs and they're not improving, and they've done all the lifestyle changes, should I now be thinking I should genetically test them? I think it's not a, I think it's not a bad idea. So I would say that if a person's on a, uh, a medication that, that both doctor and patient think uh, is important and it's not working, one reason might be because of the patient's genetic makeup. And again, it's easy with something like codeine. It's tougher with a PPI because... As you say, maybe the reason why the person still has reflux is because they're still eating and drinking things they maybe shouldn't, or they're maybe they're timing their PPI dose incorrectly. Mm. But if it's if someone's got ongoing disabling reflux, maybe they're just maybe they just need a higher dose. And the way to easily check that is with their genotyping. Interesting. There's there's, there's one more wrinkle worth mentioning here. It's that your genotype, meaning what your gene testing says. And your phenotype, which is how you behave, might be different. So let me give you an example using codeine. Let's imagine someone is on codeine for pain, for chronic pain, and they're taking, I don't know, 240 milligrams of codeine a day, and they've been doing it for years, and it's working for them. Um, One could infer that they probably have the enzyme, CYP2D6, that turns it into morphine. What would happen if the doc put the patient on a medication that turns off CYP2D6. And we do this all the time. Bupropion turns it off. Thalacoxib turns it off. So so you can imagine a scenario where even though your genotype says you have active CYP2D6 or maybe even lots of it, you could in reality be a poor metabolizer because you're on another drug that just turns the enzyme off. And so this is one more little complexity here that I think is worth knowing about because sometimes what the genetic test says and what the patient or doctor see doesn't quite match up. Now, until we're doing universal genetic testing for drug genotypes, what is the path forward? We've been talking a lot about using race to sort of identify risk and then that maybe that triggering certain testing, but that's also controversial. Yeah, but it's intuitive too, right? So let's let's use carbamazepine and Stevens-Johnson and that HLA-B1502. So we know that 
particular HLA is vanishingly rare in people of Japanese descent, like 0.03%. It's very rare. Whereas in people of Han Chinese descent, it might be up in the order of, I mean, it depends on the study, but on the order of, let's say, 5%. It's intuitively more appealing to undertake testing in people whose ethnicity puts them in a, a higher prevalence category. In other words, it makes more sense to test somebody in China than it would in, in Japan or someone who's of Chinese descent as opposed to someone who's of Japanese descent. So the other point to make is that the we've talked about a couple of examples where I think it's reasonable to consider testing, but we still don't, for many of these tests, have a really good handle on what exactly the positive predictive and negative mm. predictive values are. So there's, mm. we have more to learn about these things. So it's, I don't want to give people the impression that they're bad doctors because they're not testing for these things. Right. It's more about a, having an awareness and realizing that it might come into play at some point. So what advances are you expecting, let's say, in the next decade in terms of personalized medicine when we're talking about medications and effectiveness and, I guess, adverse events also? I think we are going to see more and more patients being tested either reactively in response to a reaction or increasingly before drugs are started. And it'll be incumbent upon us to have some sense of how to approach this. So I'm aware of the fact that, for example, in Ontario, there is an initiative that's currently in place to help prescribers test patients and how to interpret the results of testing for various drugs. So uh, I, I, this, uh, I can't say much more about it, but I can say I'm pretty comfortable saying that within six or 12 months, you'll be seeing stuff that a working group in Ontario has put out to advise people on how to go about doing this sort of testing mm. and how to interpret the results when they come through. And I think you'll see more and more of that as time goes on. And I think it's going to lend itself to safer drug therapy. Um, I think one useful website that people might want to to have in their armamentarium. If you type in CPIC, that's the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium into Google, it'll bring you to a website. It's got much more in it than most people want to read, but very well researched. It's kept up to date and it's got all kinds of guidelines and gene drug pairs mm -hmm. and publications for people who want to read more about this topic. It's a really great website. Very this cool. This is amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This is my, my pleasure, guys. Dr. David Yearling, he's a staff internist and head of clinical pharmacology and toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Science Center in Toronto. So, Blair, what are your first impressions? This is fascinating to me. It it seems it seems pretty complicated in a way. Um Every time I try to get smart and like order a test I don't normally order, I end up getting screwed when the results come back and I'm like, oh, I have no idea how to interpret this. Like you're either hoping for a really high result or a really low result. And so this just sort of adds to a little bit of uncertainty. But at the same time, it seems like it's so consequential for people. Like let's say you're prescribing a drug that you think is guideline directed medical therapy. And the next thing you know, like it just floats around their body, but doesn't do anything. And so they're still at risk. Like it sort of puts all of our efforts in limbo, like why why bother having doctors if we're just going to fall back on assuming that it's going to work in 93% of the population and for the other 7%, well, we'll just wait until their stent occludes or they'll have to get scoped because no one thought to double their PPI dose. Like it seems like it has real consequences for people, like not just an insignificant like 0.001% of the population, but we're talking about pretty remarkable numbers here. 
Yeah, and I think part of that is because, you know, that's why we have continued medical education is that a lot of this development is all very new. Talking about personalized medicine and genetic testing is all very new, mm-hmm. but it is extremely consequential. Like I only remember P450. I didn't know, know about any other P470 <laughs> or whatever else um, Dr. Yearling was talking about. So I do think that, you know, for us as physicians, we have to start I never thought of that as my differential of when right. something is not working. Is like, wait, could it be this? And so now I'm going to start using that as part of my, like for the things that we know, uh, you know, could this be part of the differential of why something is not working? Right. And even if, even if we don't have like that capacity to like keep all those different cytochrome things in our mind or understand all the genetic testing, or maybe people don't even have access to that genetic testing in some places, at least we can be on that lookout, right? For oh, it's not working? Well, maybe I'll just double your dose and see what happens. Or, oh, you have a rash and a fever? Like, this could be your allopurinol. This could be one of those drugs of concern that I have flagged in my mind. Maybe that's maybe that's one of the best takeaways from today is that we just need to be thinking about it, even though the execution of all these really fancy things aren't perfect yet. That's it for this week on the CMAJ podcast. Be sure to like or share the podcast wherever it is that you download your audio. It goes a long way to helping us get the message out. I'm Mojolo Mali. I'm Blair Bigham. And until next time, be well.